This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking in. Welcome to Common Decency. I'm Howie Kahn. For the next few months, I'll be talking with designers, artists, performers, writers, and more, all about what makes their work good, what makes it matter, and what makes it decent. This week's guest is Robin Standifer. Along with her husband, Stephen Alish, Robin is a co-founder of Roman and Williams. The firm's brilliant interiors and designs can be found all around the world, from the British galleries inside New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art to brand new work in London itself. Robin creates rooms and moods to travel for, to think about, and to come back to. Coming up, we talk about balancing art with comfort, what designers are truly responsible for, and how Roman and Williams' ongoing British period has changed their lives. Stay tuned for Robin. I don't know how it works. Maybe you get a phone call from somebody uh, and they say, do you want to design this hotel that's going into the Bow Street Magistrates Court? which is historically an amazing building, 19th century, former police station, court, all kinds of uh, political history, criminal justice history, social history, amazing location in Covent Garden. What's the first thing you guys do when you when you get a note like that or when you catch wind of such an opportunity? So I remember that call. And the building is so interesting. It's so muscular. It's got such a complicated history. And at the moment that we kind of received that, we were working on an unbelievable project, rethinking and redesigning the British galleries at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So we were pretty like focused on English history and English design and and sort of a British tradition of sort of artistic spirit, which kind of related to the magistrate's court, related to Bow Street. So you guys are having a very British moment in in your firm. Yes, indeed. I mean, Stephen and I have both always had a real interest in England from a, I think, social history as well as, as I was saying, artistic history and object history, which for us is a big kind of part of what, what frames our perspective about a place. And so when we were chosen to design the British galleries at the Met, it really kind of sent us on this immersive investigation of Britain and London. And Bow Street has a history where there were parts of the building even built earlier, prior to the current one. So it, it, it just was such um, an inspiration to get the project and to be able to combine some of the things we were learning and thinking about at the Met and, and in a way release kind of some of the ghosts out of this building that was pretty much about authority, right? And certainly not about sort of freedom and creative spirit. And how do you bring that? How do you reinvent that in a space that was uh, a basically a, you know, police station was a basically a place that was, was about a reprimand versus, you know, freedom. I know part of your mission is to combine comfort with with curiosity, and I would imagine um, layering a feeling of comfort into what's this authoritative building is is challenging. So what are some of the things that you guys did to make it comfortable? 
You know, I think that something we always, is always pretty important to us early in the process is thinking about public space as something that's somewhat private and in a sense residential or domestic. And Nomad as a brand and as a kind of concept is very interesting that way because I think that's in its sort of fundamental DNA to create a place that just sort of feels like a remarkable residence, like a rambling house. And so for us, being able to combine, right, in contrast, the sort of intense sort of rigidity of the building with something that was just more domestic and richer and just varied and complex and incredibly comfortable was a pretty serious challenge. How do you filter your values when you're going to a place like London and really doing, as you were saying, this deep dive for the first time as people who are sort of natural Francophiles who tend to flock to Paris? You're tasked with going to London and learning enough and feeling expert enough to to make an imprint, right? To make your mark. When do you feel comfortable? Like at what level and what kind of research has to go into the process? Well, we're pretty immersive in that process. We're immersive just in terms of historical research in terms of, you know, we really believe context is everything. So contextual research of the building, of the community and surroundings. I mean, Covent Garden has a very interesting past, an interesting bohemian past, an artistic past, a kind of checkered past that sort of connects to that, you know, police building being there. And so we dive into all those stories to kind of understand our context. And then something that forgets that context and comes up with values of experience. Those those values come from creating a recipe, like a simmering of all the different strata, the strata of community context, historical context, and just, you know, inspirations. Inspirations where we're like, ah, look at that interesting connection. Look at where these two threads connect. Look at how these stories are intersecting. And now let's apply that. So that might be in a color. That might be in something where, you know, the New York, um, London connection was interesting to us. And like the, the arts and crafts movement, you know, the arts and crafts movement was powerful in London, but also quite powerful in New York because it was also about this artistic spirit. So going from 18th century Turner, you know, and the palette of Turner, and Turner was painting and selling paintings right in Covent Garden, you know, clicks away from the front door of the hotel to a kind of an interesting sort of abstract expressionism in the 20th century connecting London and New York as places that were particularly innovative in sort of giving a new sort of 20th century abstraction to an art movement, a voice. And they were two places that that voice really was elevated. And so we were looking for those connections. I'm always fascinated by the time I spent in London. I just can't stop walking and I just never want to go to bed. You never know what's going to be around the next corner. It's almost hard to waste any time on sleep. And from a design perspective, it's centuries of influence. Oh, exactly. You know, we designed this amazing atrium from the ground up that's actually within the old yard, basically the outdoor yard. And, and you know, you, you can think from 
modern movies, what, you know, the police station yard feels like, right? Not the most, um, you know, maybe inviting place, intense, but not inviting. So to have to reinvent that, but we were thinking, let's reinvent that with plants. And sort of plants are very inspiring and they promote freedom and growth. And so we made this beautiful green atrium kind of growing out of, if you will, the weeds of that police yard. So we were interested in how you evolve the story in that way. There's also something beautiful about what's going on here on a, a metaphorical level in terms of turning something that was, you know, a, a police headquarters and a court and a jail into something very beautiful, something that was meant to um, put people in captivity versus something that's meant to give people freedom. Well, you're on to the bird thing now, you know, so this idea of freedom and migration. So birds are a big reference in the hotel because they do represent exactly what you're talking about, something that was caged and captured. So we want to release that. Because there's a lot of, I mean, not to get too heady, but like a lot of that energy in the bones of that kind of building, and you have to unlock it. And, and I think that releasing it was definitely part of our, our a, a fundamental value and figuring how to do that. And I think making something that's romantic and delightful does kind of undermine and offset this sort of sense of being captured and imprisoned. I don't think that's too heady at all. I mean, I think if you're somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about what to do with old buildings, one of the first things you kind of have to confront is that old buildings do have ghosts. They do. They do. By nature, they do. And that's what, you know, makes them powerful. And that's what makes historic architecture very engaging for a huge part of, like, the, you know, global population. People love to go see them. They are very curious about them and the stories they have to tell that are in sort of every floor and every doorway and to have the opportunity to be the shepherd of reinventing that and of letting people in and letting them experience the space in a new way and kind of like letting those ghosts out to enjoy it with the, with the public. You know, I'm very proud of a lot of the spaces in Nomad and a lot of the stories we're able to tell and particularly the sense of circulation. There is a circulation that feels almost like those goats that you could just meander. You could just be in this mode of discovery, moving through this big rambling building to find all these different kind of wonderful spaces. How is your thinking and approach to designing for hospitality changed over the years? or evolved? I think it's more evolved than changed. I really do. I'm proud to say that, you know, we always had a fundamental philosophy of um, ethos versus style. And I think we were kind of leaders in that conversation. And I think, and I don't mean this immodestly, but I think a lot of people started to catch up. I think in a way that that was um, a new way to look at an innovation. The innovation there was simply saying context is everything. You don't need to create a shape you haven't seen before. You can take something that's fundamental and traditional and layer onto it and evolve a design narrative and a conversation. And so we've been really devoted to that mission. I, I always, you know, Stephen and I say, think in the box. <laughs> and, 
And so we've been devoted to that mission since we started. And Roman Williams is crazy as it is getting near 20 years old. And, and I think that, that by not pigeonholing ourselves into one style, we never had to have that like <clears throat> clear your throat conversation of like, here's what we're doing this year. It just, it was always again about a fundamental philosophy more than a particular style. And there's a tremendous freedom in that. Can you talk about some of the things that you discovered in London in particular during your trips there, during your research, whether it's a restaurant or a gallery, a street, um, a park, anything you really love, things you, you miss when you're not there now? Oh, I do miss it. I have to say, I love the gardens, you know, I love the greenhouses. I love Kew Gardens, not right in center of the city, but close enough. I love things like Borough Market because they're gritty and amazing and they show again a certain kind of like hybrid of all the cultures in London. Of course, the Indian food because it's just fierce and there's nothing like it. I love also like even some of the private clubs. I love that people still will get dressed up there. And I love there's still that level of refinement. London's a city that's been finding these stories and kicking around, you know, longer than New York. And I think that that New York is, I was born and raised there, but London does have, it simmers. I mean, the British Museum, the V&A. I love Bond Street at Christmas. I love Fortnum Mason. I love you know, cheese shops that are 200 years old. And there's a fierce devotion to tradition and a certain modern thinking that really appeals to me, that, that past and future, which again is a fundamental principle of the way Stephen and I live and work. New York is a city that kind of eats itself, where it's always turning over and there's new buildings and the thing you thought was there isn't there anymore. Yeah. And London is very much about preserving so much of what it was while adding, you know, touches of modernity that are deeply felt. 100%. I really feel so, I guess, moved by the embracing of, of looking back and looking forward simultaneously. And I really am moved by a place that allows you to kind of do that. And it's modern because it's here right now. Like we're in it. We as people make it modern. I'm always curious about how people who are hyper creative, such as yourself and have bring so much experience into a project, organize it in, in any way where these things are accessible to you. You know, when you're taking an influence during a project and you see all these flowers and you see all these birds and these species of grasses and plants and fabrics and textures, is it, does it go in a notebook? Does it go in a Google doc? What's, what's the method? How do you keep everything at a fingertip or is it just your brain? Well, I, I have a pretty like intense cyclopedic brain. It's been, I mean, forever for me, it's been paper and I'm still pretty paper focused, but you know, more and more with Instagram and taking a picture on your phone, it's become more digital. I mean, there wasn't a moment I didn't, and I still keep like here, I'll show you, you know, I still have like 50,000 like drawings and notebooks like everywhere. <laughs> and now you can see this is like every desk everywhere. So that is something that'll never change. You know, just comes with my age and my, me and Stephen. I mean, Stephen's a, a master draftsman. And I, the two of us are very much about touch and being tactile. 
But I think we're, we've gotten pretty digital now in terms of sharing. And it unquestionably has helped us organize our imagery and our thinking around that imagery. Even his sketches now, they're very much scanned and put in folders. So again, we're in this hybrid moment of a fairly advanced, you know, we're on the cloud and everything shared across clients globally. And then at the same time, sketching and just like taking a picture of it and sharing it on a meeting. So, you know, we're very high low that way. And I think always have been and always will be. You guys have this remarkable company you've built over 20 years prior to that. You guys designed beautiful Hollywood sets and you guys are married. I mean, it's, it's this partnership and on top of a partnership, what was the first trip you guys took together? I would imagine for people like you guys, that's like a big test of a relationship. Oh, the first trip, I guess, was to Paris. Real trip. I mean, you know, he was in L.A. and I was in New York. So we traveled back and forth to see each other in L.A. and New York. So I think Paris was the first proper like vacation we took together. And I remember it well. It was, I mean, geez, 1994. Four or five, and just been, have traveled pretty much all over the globe. I mean, we have a big appetite for understanding cultures, you know, and understanding how they function. And we we have a real interest in, in transparency and in sharing our sources. And and I will say though that this connection, I think, to transparency and sharing our friends and neighbors and artistic community across the world, which is something that I think doesn't happen enough. And I think there's this tremendous fear that people think that someone's going to steal something from you. And I think if you really love what you do and you really love your partners, they can't because it's about those things you make together that make it so profound. So when you ask me about Stephen and I, you know, we're a, a couple and a partnership that believes in that kind of synergy and transparency and fundamentally love of everything you make and everything you do and that that's what drives you. And that's why we, you know, often you'll hear us say it on other things and I'm missing him here today, but if he was here, he'd say, well, I can't imagine not being married to someone I work with. And maybe it's because for us, life and work are very seamless. So about common decency, it is the name of the podcast, and I think it is a really important thing to discuss. What does designing with common decency in mind mean to you guys? I deeply care about this question now, and I was really excited to find out that's what you were focused on, because I think, you know, I think it's not an obvious answer. And I think the answer has to do with a kind of intensive transparency. Like at the Met, there was a reality that a lot of the ivory pieces, you know, were kind of born out of a slave trade and culture. And, you know, again, when, when I sat with the curators and we all talked about the display tactics for them and the storytelling, it was about being very transparent that that was the case, not taking them away. Because there was a big dialogue in the museum community, Howie, about not showing those pieces. And we all were like, no, the opposite. You show them you're honest about it and you learn and you hope that every single visitor learns from how as human beings that happened and let's not let that happen again. And you don't do that by obliterating the fact that it happened. So 
this is not about celebrating, but educate. And so I think being educational is a huge part of sort of that idea about common decency. And so we, you know, I, I think at the Guild and at Roman Williams, we really like to support a kind of culture of responsibility. That's really the way we work. Stephen and I are still very much involved in day-to-day -day operations. I get, and so does he, every email that every single person writes at both companies. And I cannot make my way through every one, but I try. And I get really close because I believe there's a responsibility to all those people who work for us that we are involved at every level, at every strata that to just be like, well, we're the owners, like, let me know. And sometimes it's funny because people will interpret it as like us wanting oversight and it's the exact opposite. It's about sharing. It's about wanting to feel like you're part of a community. And that's what, what really running a responsible business is. Robin, I want to thank you so much for being here on Common Decency. Please send Stephen my best. I will, Howie, and thank you for having me. So much fun to talk and much appreciated. We look forward to seeing everything you guys did in the hotel and everything that's coming up. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Robin Standifer, co-founder of Roman & Williams. Check out more of the firm's work at romanandwilliams.com. Their products can be found at rwguild.com. For reservations at the Nomad London, www.thenomadhotel.com slash London. Our show is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Andrew Zobler is the executive producer. Our theme music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Isadora McKeon, Kristen Millar, and Stephen Merriweather. Common Decency will return soon with a brand new guest. This is Common Decency, a Nomad London podcast. Checking out 